Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Elena Weinheimer, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Bigelow Laboratory of Ocean Sciences. It is no exaggeration to say that I've come away from our conversation with a newfound appreciation of viruses, bacteria, and how they exist in the ocean. It was especially interesting to hear from Elena about her educational journey and learning about the ocean. Going from coral reefs to viruses is not necessarily a typical path, but hearing her talk about her progression was really interesting. Elena was a five-minute genius speaker for the 2023 Maine Science Festival. I have included a link to her talk in the show notes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Elena, welcome to Maine Science Podcast. It is a joy to have you join us. I know you're relatively new to Maine and kind of relatively new, I think, into some of the specific research you're doing. But before I let you talk about that, I would love to hear kind of how you got into oceans and microbial work. I do know you grew up in Pennsylvania, which is not known for its ocean. So I would love to know how you ended up (laughs) studying and being intrigued by ocean life. Yeah. So I grew up going to the beach and vacations and I just always loved going to the beach. I wasn't sure about career opportunities in marine science. I think what was presented to me as a kid is, you know, like working at SeaWorld or something. And those just seem like making it big and not a whole lot of opportunities there. So when I went into college, I started out thinking I would be an optometrist and then live by the beach because there's everybody has eyes. I didn't even have glasses at the time. So I don't know where I didn't want to go to regular medical school be optometry school. So I was taking classes for that. And then I went to Penn State for my bachelor's. I had to do a research project as part of my program. And so when it came time to pick a research lab, I went through the biology faculty page and I saw alphabetically, I came across Dr. Ileana Bombs and looked at her lab page and it was all about coral reef research. And I didn't even really know what coral were at the time, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is marine science. It's the ocean. I love science already. This is perfect. And so once I started working in her lab, my world opened of all the different opportunities in marine research, whether that's doing science, developing policy, monitoring, and all the different avenues you can go. The microbiology component kind of came in as like a convergence of things. I was in the optometry program kind of pseudo. There wasn't a full-on optometry program at Penn State or pre-optometry. I took microbiology instead of ecology at the time. Um, I went back and took ecology anyway later, but I took microbiology. I really loved the lab component of it too, which is growing things was so cool. I'm not very good at growing plants, but growing microbes came a bit more naturally to me and I thought it was fascinating. And then also in the coral world and even in the human world, the idea of the human microbiome and the coral microbiome, I mean, this was 2010, so it was still kind of established, but still also kind of new. I mean, it's still kind of new. But it was all coming up about how microbes can actually be helpful. And in the coral world, a lot of the issues are from diseases. And so I got really interested in coral disease and uh, having the microbiology courses and kind of understanding how microbes impact coral health, both from a disease standpoint, but also from maybe some beneficial microbes. And then the virology component came in later in my graduate studies. I had taken a virology course in my bachelor's program, and then it was just up and coming to look at viruses in the environment and seeing how they're impacting those relationships. So that was kind of my route. I don't know if I could be an optometrist, so I think I'm glad that things panned out the way they did. <laughs> so I'm curious, why do you think viruses were up and coming at that time? Was it just kind of a recognition that Oh, they really are that vital and we haven't looked at them at all? 
A combination of, we didn't know that they were there in the first place until like, I guess it was the 1970s or so, early, like late 1970s. Like they were starting to get recognized as being really abundant in the ocean specifically. I guess some of the seminal papers looking at their impact on food webs in the ocean were around the early 2000s, late 1999 or so. And that was partly because no one expected them to be there and no one thought they would be there or that they were that important there. And then these microscopy studies showed that in the seawater, you can see that there's a bunch of DNA coming from viruses. But there were a lot of challenges to studying viruses compared to things that are bigger and even microbes. So viruses don't have a universal gene. So if you want to go and look for them in the environment, you can't just look for this one gene like you can with bacteria and fungi and other cellular organisms. So the methods weren't quite there to study them the way that we can do now. And so we were finally being able to get to study and all of that method toying and figuring that out started to get more standardized over the last 10, 15 years or so. And so then it started to become easier. And a lot of it relies on DNA sequencing, which is really expensive. And now it's starting to be somewhat affordable. So that was a factor. Beginning of the right place, right time almost. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So why the Max Planck Institute for your master's? Why go to Germany? Why leave the States? Well, I I always had the science bug, but I also had a lot of other... I almost majored in art history at one point, and I thought I'd teach English in Germany or German in English. I teach German in high school. I like loved the country. I even wanted to go there for my bachelor's, but I didn't. That wasn't going to work out for me, unfortunately. So my advisor in my lab and my bachelor's, Ileana Baum, she's actually in Germany now, but she had collaborators in Germany. She told me about this program. And it was a master's program. It gave you a broad overview of things and a huge advocate for it. So if anyone's interested, I them to contact me. It's called the Marmic program. And so it's for marine microbiology. The whole center is for marine microbiology specifically. So it was right up directly aligned with my research interests. And it gave the opportunity to live in Germany. And it was a paid master's position. So it wasn't like I would be taking on more debt by pursuing this there. And it was an opportunity to live in another country particularly German, where I had some language baseline, although I didn't need to speak it there. But it, and it was all like a hub of all the research going on in the field or a lot. So it connected me to a lot of different people from work going there. So did that master's program, you said it was really broad, which is super interesting because master's programs are rarely broad, usually start narrowing down. Did that help you figure out like, this is exactly what I want to do and narrow down a PhD? I mean, did you think about a PhD before the master's program? So I really thought I was obsessed with coral. I thought I'm going to save the coral reefs with microbes. I'm going to figure out that's going to be my like life pursuit. And there weren't a ton of coral reef microbiology labs. <laughs> so believe it or not. And so I had contacted a couple to do a PhD because I thought that this is the area I want to go. And the funding didn't work out for some of them, or maybe they just told me the funding didn't work out as a polite way. I don't know. So I saw this master's program, I applied, and it was more general than I was wanting to be. I thought I already figured out what I wanted to do, but fine, I'll go do this master's program. I want to live in Germany, or I wanted to try living in Germany. So this master's program, why it was broad, which is counterintuitive (laughs) for becoming a specialist, the first six months you took courses and lab courses. And it honestly kind of felt like high school because you were nine to five in different courses and you were with your same 14 students, which was great to have a friend group already. And it covered all different topics from physical oceanography to all different types of things, the DNA component of it, the Arctic, we covered just all different parts of the ocean. 
And so whether I wanted to learn it or not, <laughs> I was learning it. And we also did lab rotations. So there were six months of courses and then six months of lab rotations. And you rotated in three different labs. And I knew that coding was going to be kind of important in general, everything where big data sets are getting generated. I kind of had an inkling that I was going to like data analysis because I did an internship in college. And my favorite part of that internship was when I finally got the data and I could see what was happening. Whereas, you know, I'm a bit clumsy. And so I've definitely had many mistakes in the lab. And so the data, I also felt like a more safe environment for me. And so in one of the lab rotations, I did a coding rotation. And I didn't think that I would like it because it intimidated me, the big black screen with white letters and just like not being able to like, I don't know, that relationship. It's not quite the same as seeing something grow. And so I did it just to like learn it or have it as a part of my toolkit. Still thinking that I might do coral research after this. But then I found that I loved making graphs and seeing what's happening in the world and trying different tests. It let me be curious in a non-expensive way, or at least because you can always reanalyze the data, re-download the data if something bad happens. And then viruses started to pop up with all these data sets being available to study viruses. And that was all genetic data and these big data sets. So I could tie that together. And so the last six months of the master's program was doing a master's thesis, which is not a lot of time to do a whole research project. So often you would jump in or continue a lab rotation. But instead, I started something new. I joined the symbiosis department and they were working on deep sea mussels. And these deep sea mussels have a bacteria in them that can convert chemical energy into food. And so they don't eat algae. They live by having this special bacteria in their gills. And so that was the focus or part of the focus of that department. They call them departments there instead of research groups. That was part of their focus of the research. And they had gone on a cruise to collect these samples with a different research lab from America that works on viruses. And so they thought, hmm, I wonder if there are viruses in these muscle gills or living with these muscles. And so with collaborators, they enriched a data set for viruses or they made a special data set. They modified the samples so we could look at viruses in them. And they had these samples and they didn't have anyone analyzing the viruses in those samples. And so that was what I started my master's thesis project on. And I was sent to Ohio State to work with the collaborators there. So I was not fully in Germany during the whole master's program, but I learned how to do the viral data analysis in Ohio State. And so that was my winding route, which is not coral reefs, very far from <laughs> tropical coral reefs, but how I ended up there. And I decided I really liked data analysis and the data sets at the time were not super available for, from coral reefs. I have done projects with coral reefs since. So when you went to Ohio State while you were doing your master's in Germany and the coding, did you write programs to do analysis on the data? Did you just kind of pick at the data and pick different things? And this is where I'm way over my skis. What viruses were you looking at? So for the data analyses, and I guess we'll briefly explain and I'm just going to talk about viruses, genetic data right now. You use a metagenome, which is all the DNA of all entities in your sample, which might include viruses or are not viruses or are other things or are, you know, dead DNA floating around. And so your first step is to detect if the DNA sequence you're looking at is viral or not, belongs to a virus. Now, the types of viruses can also depend on what you're looking for. And so the most common ones or the well, most well studied, I should say, and very prevalent viruses are viruses of bacteria or archaea called phages. And they have double-stranded DNA genomes like our own. 
So this kind of data would not show you a coronavirus or an animal virus or something like that. Those are typically RNA viruses. I think you can still sometimes pick up those signatures from those in DNA data sets, but it's a little complicated. And there are special ways to look for RNA viruses in the environment. But I was focusing on the double-stranded DNA viruses of microbes. Ideally, I was hoping to find a microbe that could infect those bacteria in the muscles going back to the deep sea. But the more I thought about it, it's very unlikely that there would be a virus that would have a very big impact on those bacteria because then the muscles would all be dead if all their bacteria were dead. So there's probably a different type of relationship going on there with viruses. So the first step was to look for virus sequences, and there are tools that already do this. And so for a lot of my beginning coding was using a tool that someone else wrote and just figuring out how to use the tool. And I still worked in spreadsheets and things like that a lot. I wanted to learn how to write tools. And that kind of led me to the PhD where I did a lot more in-depth data analysis and took computer science classes and really developed there. I think you said earlier that you can't look for viruses as a whole entity because they don't have a DNA. But this master's work, and then I assume in your PhD work, you had a sliver of the viruses you were looking for because of the way their DNA worked. Do I have that so far? Yes. Okay, so here's my question. <laughs> Why were you looking at those viruses? I know it doesn't make sense what I'm saying. Like, oh, we can't target it because we don't have one gene. No, I think what you're saying there is you can't target all of them, right? Because there's not a through line. So you have to actually pick which one specifically. So then my question is, why are you picking those? So the way we pick viruses, even this group of viruses that I'm working with that infect bacteria or prokaryotes, simple microbes, they have some features that are universal. They have a tail gene and a termase gene. And so we can look for those genes or sequences that have those special genes. They all have very different sequences. So we have to use special prediction modeling to find those sequences since they can be very divergent or different from the typical one or the model ones. And these are the viruses that infect bacteria and prokaryotes. And I was most interested in those types of viruses because they might be impacting the microbiome of the muscles. And so that's why they were targeted over RNA viruses, for example. And did you stick with the muscle virus work for your PhD, or did you switch and learn both that and all the computer science stuff you wanted to learn? Well, I did not stick with the deep sea. I did like the deep sea, but there were a lot of challenges. And I think I got actually kind of lucky with the pandemic putting fieldwork on pause for the PhD. So yeah, I had three samples from the deep sea that I was working with on my master's. And the statistics on that is difficult, but that's the best we can do. And so they do a lot of great science, even with what you can get from the deep sea in terms of how challenging it is to sample and, and expensive and things. So for the PhD, I wanted to learn more data analysis, bigger data sets. I was more interested in microbes and global change. So I joined Frank Ilward's lab at Virginia Tech, and he was working on kind of the evolution of microbes in the ocean. But I still had this passion about viruses specifically. And so my project kind of developed as I went. And I'll just say I did an evolution project on one gene that looks like cellular genes, but is actually viral. We thought we discovered aliens, but it ended up just being a viral version of the gene, not an alien one. It's yeah. still really cool. <laughs> like, what is this? Oh, it's just a, from a virus. <laughs> So I did a very an evolution project on that and then a project on looking at the unusually large viruses, just looking for viruses in ways that we never looked for them before and to look for unusually large ones. 
prior, and we still do this, and I still see a lot of viral studies that do this, you filter out cells to get the viruses because cells are bigger than viruses. But some viruses can be just as big as cells. And in fact, giant viruses, and you guys have covered giant viruses before, but people thought they were a bacteria for a long time. And so where you're starting to see viruses can be larger, but no one was really looking at this for bacterial viruses. And so one of my PhD projects was trying to look in cellular size fractions of genetic material. So when we look at the larger filter sizes, if we see DNA of larger phages there, and there's other special ways that you have to do to look for those larger phages. And so that was one of my projects. So not really connecting to global change, but kind of just a discovery. Can we find them? Where are they? And then my final project finally got back to coral reefs when I was looking at microbial communities in, off the coast of Panama in mangroves and coral reefs and just seeing how different do. You know, in theory, a virus can only reproduce by killing and infecting its host. So if the virus is there, then you might expect that the host is there because otherwise it couldn't reproduce. So I wanted to see if the community of the microbes changed, how much does the viral community change? Because sometimes a virus can infect different types of microbes. And that, so you might see a change in the hosts or the microbes, but you won't see a change in the viruses necessarily. So there's a lot of complexity in that interaction. And so that was my last project did. This is really great. As I was listening to you, I realized I think most of us don't understand the difference between bacteria and viruses and how a virus can impact a bacteria. I actually don't know if that's vice versa. So if you could do a little mini tutorial on bacteria and viruses, I have a feeling it's going to help explain why you think viruses are so cool. Yeah, yeah. So a virus are generally, I'll just start with those different definitions, you know, is a replication element. Whether or not you want to call it an organism alive, that's up for debate. But, you know, it's a genetic material encased in a protein shell called a capsid. And so that genetic material can be DNA, RNA, something along those lines. And then phages or viruses of bacteria and microbes, prokaryotes, and how they reproduce and, and how a virus in general reproduces is getting into the cell or injecting its genetic material into the cell somehow, and then using the cell's material to make new copies of itself. And some viruses can make new copies of themselves and just bleb off of the cell. And the cell isn't hurt or sickened necessarily. But for many that are well studied, when the virus makes new particles of itself, it eventually bursts the cell open and releases the new progeny viruses into the environment that then can go and infect other bacteria. Okay, that's perfect. I'm going to make a stop for a second. You sort of skated over in a really good way of whether you want to argue they're alive or not. And I think this is the part that's freaky. What is going on there with viruses? Like, why is that so up for debate? Yeah. So a virus particle itself outside of a cell is just genetic material in a shell. So you could think of it as like an M&M, the coat and the chocolate on the inside not really doing anything. It's not changing, responding to the environment. It's not breathing or respiring. But once it gets into the cell, that's when it starts to come alive, I guess, in a way, and start making new copies and transforming the physiology of the cell that it's infecting. So some people call this, when a cell is infected with a virus, a virocell. Because it's taking on a completely different metabolism, a different life. It's behaving completely differently than if it wasn't infected by the cell. 
And so some argue that the virus cell is alive and that makes the virus alive and that a virus is alive in different contexts. So it's not alive outside of the cell, but maybe inside the cell, it is making new copies of itself and breathing or making the cell breathe in a certain way. Where do you land? I'm just curious, like, where do you land on this? I mean, to me, it sounds like tardigrades because they've shown, right, they can basically... I don't even think hibernate is the right word, but they can, so these microscopic animals that need water, but when they're not in water, they're just there. There's nothing happening, but they've taken them and put them out in the vacuum of space and they brought them back and put them in water and they popped right back up. Like things that should not happen, happen, but those are recognized as actually little microscopic animals. So it sounds to me like viruses are like that, but just on a cellular level. Yeah, sometimes are like a seed. It's not quite replicating. I actually recently discussed with Luke somewhat. The virus can only reproduce and exist inside the cell, which that tardigrade is technically still itself when it's in different environments. Parasite spectrum. There are some parasites that can only reproduce. And so it's more like a parasite situation where, you know, there's vectors of the parasite, so to speak, and it's bouncing around until it finds the host that it can reproduce in and carry out its life cycle. So I think that probably analogy is more lifelike, I guess. No, this is cool. This just leads me to realize we know so little still, and there's still so much to learn, right? I mean, what you were saying before about even being able to look for viruses in the ocean is really like, in all intents and purposes, happened yesterday in the grand scheme of science, right? Like it's just so new. So it's wildly fascinating. I will let you now talk about why you're in Maine and what cool work you're doing here, which I think is probably not coral reefs, but similar to some of the other work that you did with your PhD. So, you know, you're doing a postdoc. I noticed that you're a Simmons postdoctor fellow. So Simmons, it's an organization that funds a bunch of different, really hardcore science that people don't think of a nonprofit organization, I think, or a foundation funding. Usually people think of, you know, the National Science Foundation is who funds things, but the Simmons organization does really great funding. So it's very cool that you're tied with them. What are you doing at Bigelow Lab with all of this cool phage virus coding stuff that has gotten you to this point? I'm very interested with viruses and the state of what we know about them. We see that they're there. We're starting to understand how diverse they are, who's there, what kinds of viruses are there. But it's still not totally clear how often viruses are actually infecting bacteria and microbes. We can do some estimates based on growth rates, but we don't know who's actually killing who and how often they're being killed. And in some cases, the prokaryote, the host, the host microbe cell can be resistant to viral infection. And there are different ways that a virus can be resistant. So the prokaryote immune system, they have their own immune systems. So wait, the prokaryote system is in the ocean? So prokaryotes are single cellular organisms that lack a nucleus. So they're a special type of microbe. There's three different types of cells. There's the archaea, bacteria, and eukarya. Our cells are eukarya, plants are eukarya, protists are eukarya. They all have nuclei. People don't love that definition because it's a definition of a lacking. So an absence of something is defining this group. But yeah, they are archaea, which is a bit different from bacteria in terms of their cellular membrane. They have some features that make them different. And that's why they're considered distinct. And they were only discovered in like the 70s or so. The viruses that we study and how we study viruses in the environment, looking for those double-stranded DNA, certain special genes, 
It's really hard to tell if the virus is infecting an archaea or a bacteria just based on those genes. It's possible very similar viruses can infect both of them. And so look at them together because it's too difficult to tell what that virus is necessarily infecting. Another challenge of this field is that we'll find the DNA sequence that looks like a virus, but then it's sometimes difficult to tell what it's actually infecting. We know it's probably infecting a prokaryote because of those special genes we're looking for, but if it's infecting an algal cyanobacteria or if it's infecting a vibrio or E. coli, we can't tell most of the time from the sequence alone. We're coming up with clever ways to do that, but that's another avenue in the field that's just starting. So this is just super new everything that you're working on. So what are you doing in the fine state of Maine with Bigelow? And I think I said this to Kevin and I've said it to Deb Bronk. Like, I think Bigelow is far too secret to how innovative and how important the research that happens there is, not just for Maine, but I would argue worldwide. So enlighten us on why it's so important to focus on microcellular stuff in the oceans when we can barely even think about the big stuff that's in the oceans. The food webs in the ocean are why it's important to look at the small stuff. So in the ocean, we don't have grass or trees, so to speak, to form the bottom of our food chain. Instead, it's photosynthetic algae or organisms. And those can be big kelp, or they can be really tiny bacteria cells like cyanobacteria or other phytoplankton, as they're often called. They are plankton because they float, they can't swim. And so they form the bottom of this food chain and bigger other things eat photosynthetic things, and then small animals eat those, and then larger animals, and so on. There are other microbes that are consumer bacteria, for example, or consumer microbes, and they can eat the nutrients that are floating around. So there's a lot of waste that the animals produce, or when a cell dies, it releases the material in the environment. And so those bacteria helps recycle the nutrients in the ocean from everything getting too dilute or sinking to the bottom of the sea. And so microbes are really important to understand how much nutrients are moving up the food chain and how much is sinking to the bottom of the sea or getting diluted. The viruses come into the picture because they can kill those bacteria or microbes that are at the very bottom of those food chains or the recyclers of those nutrients. When they kill those cells, they release that cell's material into the ocean or organic matter or nutrients. And so then other consumer bacteria can eat those nutrients floating around. And then those bacteria can get eaten by larger things and so on, similar to the photosynthetic fixing carbon into the ocean. So the viruses aren't necessarily wrecking the cycle. It's just a continuation in a different way with them being there. Yeah, yeah. It's all like an equilibrium. The viruses are actually helping keep the nutrients in the surface water by killing and infecting cells and releasing those nutrients. And then the consumers are able to eat from that released material. That's really cool. I think certainly the last three years, people hear virus and they don't think there's a benefit to it. So it's actually helpful to remember, well, first of all, obviously this whole system and ecosystem has been built up over millions and millions of years. So we are only just figuring it out. But also it's really easy to think bacteria and virus and think, oh, it's always harmful and it's not. So are you just trying to figure out what viruses are doing what, what bacteria are being impacted? I mean, are you at the point where it's and I mean this in all the good ways, like the very basic science of what the heck is going on? Yeah. One way that viruses impact these food webs 
is determining which microbes can live. Now, microbes can die in a lot of different ways. They can get eaten by larger things, or they can just die from old age, but they can also die by these viral infections. And so my part in this is understanding how viruses are controlling who lives and who dies. So there's sort of this, it's called the kill the winner model of virus bacteria interactions and bacteria can fight against viral infections. And it's thought that in an environment where there's a lot of one microbe, a virus might evolve that's able to kill that microbe and then destroy the whole population. And so the best virus is going to be the one that can kill the dominant, the winner, as an analogy. And so in order for the host population or the host microbes, the cells, to survive, they need to outsmart the virus or protect themselves from the virus. And so one way that this looks when we look in a lab setting, if we know there's a lot of viruses, phages that infect E. coli, for example, it's been shown in some experiments that when you expose the E. coli to a phage, the E. coli eventually evolve resistance to that virus. And that resistance in the lab is often seen as changing the outside of the cell. So viruses often attach to some sort of receptor protein on the outside of the cell and then inject their DNA. And so if the E. coli can evolve a change in that, sort of like with COVID changing its receptors, it's very similar and then the phage can no longer attach to the cell if the receptor doesn't match its tail anymore. And so that's one way that microbes can protect themselves from viral infections. And so this kind of leads to an evolution or a co-evolution. Well, then the virus can mutate its tail again to be able to infect. And so then the E. coli has to mutate its receptor again. It's called a co-evolution where things are evolving together. And so we see this in the lab that this kind of co-evolution is happening in resistance and not resistance of the bacteria. But it's unclear what's happening in the ocean. In the ocean, there's a lot fewer nutrients. And so if you mutate your receptors or the things on the outside of you that are used to bring in nutrients, you're going to lose those nutrients. So there are other ways to protect yourself from a phage infection that might be better for you in those conditions. But, you know, the nutrient concentration in the ocean can change. So maybe sometimes a receptor is useful and sometimes it's not. And so my basic research question is trying to understand how viruses impact the evolution of the microbial communities in nature rather than in these laboratory conditions, where also there are a bunch of different types of viruses and they'll have different ways of outsmarting the cell. That's what I'm working on at Bigelow, where we have these amazing data sets of microbial genomes. And I'm starting to look in those genomes for different types of immune mechanisms as a, a metaphor of protecting themselves from viral infections. So do you have to go actually sample ocean water or are you starting by trying to figure out what you already know because of the data sets? Yeah, I wish I got to go out and sample water. The type of data sets I'm working with, they are shipped from the ocean. They're using what's called a single cell genomics. So they're taking a seawater sample and they're separating all the cells in that seawater sample. And then they're sequencing the DNA of that single cell. So you can get a single cell's genetic material. And that is the data that I'm working with. I'm working with the, because these defense genes can be very variable between different cells of even the same species. And so we need this single cell resolution so that we can capture some of these genes that might be different 
within a species, like a variant, like a COVID variant. Right. This is so much more complicated than I thought. There's a lot you're trying to track and juggle. And I can imagine where if you actually did go and grab a sample of seawater, it would give you so much more information. You could spend the next year just figuring out what's in that. You know, you wouldn't even need a liter of water to explore all of that. Does it feel like you're able to make headway with these data sets and really start grounding what's known where? That is a great question. In terms of this immune system discovery, whether or not I'm seeing the full diversity of the immune system in the ocean, I haven't quite calculated that yet, but they have done it on just the kind of species level diversity of prokaryotes, um, these types of organisms. And they're seeing that you can capture a lot of what's in the ocean in like a single drop of water. I don't have numbers to put to this, but I should have it because it's my from Munis's lab. But they've found that you can get a great representation of the ocean in a very small amount of water. And the whole ocean is completely, it's mixed and things are always flowing everywhere. It takes a long time. I think like a million years or something to travel the whole ocean, but eventually it does all connect. There is lower levels of diversity when you go you know, deeper than the species level, like variants or, and so on, that you do need to capture a lot more seawater to see all of that. But we're starting to get a pretty good handle on what's out there at this point. You have got to find that amazing, right? It's not just me. No, no, I didn't believe it at first. I was like, no way getting only 300 cells, even though we know there are billion, trillion, billions in that representation of what's out there. Like that must be just a, such a small bit, but it's actually quite a lot. Things are more the same than we realize. That's really cool. So you've been at Bigelow for all of four months, right? So like I said, welcome to Maine. Does it feel like you're getting a better handle on this kind of whole ocean idea as opposed to the little pieces that you were doing with your previous work? It has definitely been more of a, a challenge. So some of the data that I'm working with are sampled from you know, polar regions and the tropics and so on. And I instinctively think they must be so different, but we are treating them as one environment and it is making sense to do that. And that has been really hard for me to accept. And so I am personally going to go in and see how much things can differ from site to site, but wrapping my head around the large ocean rather than a single coral reef site or a single deep sea site has been really challenging to think about circulation patterns in the ocean and how it all connects. Yeah, but that's really cool, isn't it? To have a postdoc where you get challenged on all of that. Yeah, I also was only working on the viral side of things. And so now I'm working on the how the bacteria fight back. And so it's been a whole new world for me from going to the big ocean, but also going to this other side of the equation. That's really cool. I loved your talk that you did at 5 Minute Genius. I think you made something that is obviously from this conversation, from my perspective, wildly complicated, really understandable. And it's really hard to do that. And I think your enthusiasm talking about this is contagious. It's enough to make me want to learn more about phages so that I can match your enthusiasm. But I have a feeling I have a lot of catch up to do. This has been a really fun conversation. I really enjoy it. I love that you're getting this introduction to whole ocean stuff and it's challenging you, but it also sounds like you're really excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy, but it's worth the time putting into it. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate this. Thank you so much. I had a blast talking about it and you got me excited by your interest in it and making me feel excited talking about it myself. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I could help inspire that. 
Thanks for listening to the Maine Science Podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice. And please leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is executive produced and hosted by me, Kate Dickerson, and edited and produced by Scott Lozell. The Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.